Content warning. This series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian Cult. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Episode 10, Survivor's Stories. This episode is a collection of survivor stories that I wanted to make sure that made the final cut of the podcast. So this episode is all about bringing these different stories in this episode. The first survivor in this episode is Michaela Halliwell. There was another situation too, which now looking back as an adult... (laughs) Years later, I'm like, how did they ever think this response was okay? And what it was is I had, you remember I mentioned my freshman year, I had, I was dating a guy and we ended up breaking up. We stayed friends. And so my, I think it was my senior year, he was dating someone else. And we were still friends, so we all hung out in the same group. This new girl that he was dating really had a jealousy problem. And didn't like that I was still friends with my ex-boyfriend. And now I wish I could be like, girl, I was gay the whole time. (laughs) I was never a threat. (laughs) But she had a jealousy problem with me even just like going to meals. You were not allowed to be alone with the opposite sex or the opposite gender. So it's, it's not like something was even ever possible of happening. You go to meals with this person and she doesn't like it. She started following me around the campus and we both worked the custodial shift after prayer group at 1045, 11 o'clock, you have to be at your job and clock in. And for an hour, you're assigned to a certain building and you clean offices. And I cleaned one on the real far part of campus, like in an admin building or something like way on the edge. Um, and so my walk back was dark and not and all of the other girls were more central to the campus. But my dorm was the farthest away from this building and it was just me. She was on custodial as well, but I believe she was probably in the music building. When I would walk out of my building and I'm probably a good half mile from my dorm, I felt someone behind me and I kind of looked behind and I, I like, I'm like, OK, that's weird. Like. Normally, no one walks with me. I walk by myself. And you're not allowed to have your cell phone with you. So I can't call anyone or anything. And then I keep walking. I keep walking. And I'm hearing footsteps behind me. But again, it's dark. So I can't see anything. We wear all black to clean. That's what the uniform was. Black pants or a skirt with black shirt. And it had like yellow letters. And so you can't see anything. I get about halfway back. And I like literally feel like there's someone right behind me. And I look and she's right there. And she didn't say anything. She just kind of peered over me. And I was like, I like walked a lot faster. And she would walk a lot faster. And I immediately ran up the dorm stairs. And you have to use your key card to get into the dorm. And my key card didn't work. And she's right here behind me. Like, right here. Not saying anything. Just like breathing down my neck. And I looked down because I had to grab my key card. I looked or I was trying to like grab something i'm like and i see she had a knife right at my back of course now i'm banging on the door and the ra comes running from the computer in the hallway and opens the door 
And I sprinted three stairs at a time up to my room. And you don't have locks on your doors. That, that would be, you're hiding something if you had a lock. We couldn't invade your privacy if you have a lock. So I ran up to my dorm room and I closed it and I'm breathing heavy. I'm scared. And all of a sudden they hear a knock on my door. And I was like, oh my God. And I like, you don't have peepholes or anything. So like I open it and she's right there with the dorm supervisor. And this dorm supervisor, I still have nightmares about her to this day. And that's probably my ongoing trauma. But she is a figure in my dreams to this day. And and she's standing there with this girl and the girl doesn't have the knife now. But but my dorm supervisor said, Michaela, I'm going to need you to come down to my room. The dorm supervisor lives in the dorm. And it's just like a double room, like two rooms. And one is a kitchen and one is a bedroom. And she lives by herself. And she's 23 in charge of hundreds of girls. But generally, it's someone that they would tout as like a spiritual leader. And this particular dorm soup was a missionary kid to Germany. And she's very intimidating, very dry, very strict. I was afraid of her, very afraid of her. Every time I came across her, my heart would skip a beat. And so, of course, the two of them standing there together at one o'clock at night, I'm, I may as well have shit my pants. So I go down with them. And in front of this girl, she says, Michaela, name redacted. This girl has has said that she really is just trying to make things right with you and that you guys have a personal problem and she's trying to make things right with you and you just ran away from her. And I saw you do it. I saw you run up these stairs so fast and try You're avoidant of, of the way God wants you to be sisters in Christ together and make things right. And we need to come together and have unity in Christ and blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. And it was just, she told me that you're not getting along and I see that you ran away from her. And clearly she was trying to be nice and make things right with you. And I was scared. I didn't say anything. I was just like, because the girl's right there. Otherwise, I, pro- I would have said she had a knife. She was following me. Her custodial shift is nowhere near mine, and she followed me the entire way. I'm scared of her. I didn't say that. And it's because I didn't have a voice back then. Nowadays, I would have grabbed the knife from her right there. You know what I mean? But I have no confidence as a 19-year-old right there, and especially raised in that environment where your authority is telling you what the right and wrong thing is. And that girl didn't go away. She would be around a lot whenever I was at games or dinner or she would sit at the same table, but like down a couple spaces or she would. I would be hanging outside of the dorm with a friend of mine just talking before I went into my dorm and she went into hers and this girl would circle where we were or she would pull up with her car right there and just watch us. And I never spoke up about that. I never said anything. And six months later, that girl married some guy that she had just met. And so like there was clearly issues with her. But the point of that story is that I did not feel safe enough to tell the people who were supposed to protect me. That's the point of that story. Whatever mental issues that girl had going on, I hope she got help one day. That's she's obviously not in her right mind. She's obviously got something going on trauma wise that I can't even relate to. It's completely different from my own. And I actually have empathy for her now. But I was in a dangerous situation and I had no one to reach out to. I had no one to say, help me. I don't feel safe because my story had been told for me as soon as I walked into the room and it was immediately assumed that I was in the wrong. Arguing with them was pointless. They don't believe you. Yeah. And it's so manipulative. It's so cunning and really like evil that 
she did that and it just oof and the fact that you went to your room and there's no locks I remember them getting locks on the doors when I was there the for the first time <laughs> I was there from 2018 to 2021 so during those years I can't remember what year it was was but it like a like a, something that came out of COVID maybe or I feel like it happened before COVID okay it might have been my it was probably late freshman year maybe 2019 maybe I'm not sure on that but I remember that they got locks of course, they it was like the same for you. You put your card up to it and it would unlock. And it was funny because they would have, it was, there was a lot of issues with the locks at times because your card just sometimes just wouldn't work and you had to keep your door open because you're like, it's so funny. They can control that. They can control it and they can give anyone access to your room too. Think about how dangerous that is. Oh yeah, they can. And like, thankfully they did fix the lock issues and it was fine later in my college career, but yet. They can give anyone access, yeah, and to your room, like from their little IT, whatever, wherever they do that stuff. But yeah, it's at the bottom of the men's dorm where, like, the upper class men. Uh, that was. Gosh. There was one other situation I want to talk to you about to and, tell you about. Yeah, um, word. which is also a similar abuse of power and not being able to trust who you think you're supposed to trust. So like I said, like a lot of this was put on a pedestal for me when I was young. And so I believed in these authority figures wholeheartedly. I believed that the person placed in spiritual authority over me was there for a good reason. I believed that the teachers and the nurses and the doctors and the everybody was there to better my situation, was there to speak on behalf of God. <laughs> and how can you argue with that? My junior year, the same roommate that went through my diary... She was a little odd of a person. She had an older sister who she like overly idolized. And I love my siblings, but I don't, they're not every sentence out of my mouth. And her sister was a constant presence that we knew and felt even though she wasn't around. Her sister had sent her this plant, right, to keep in her room. Sweet. Sister gave you a plant. How nice. I was allergic to the plant in our room. And I found out I was allergic to the plant after I went into anaphylaxis one night on our top bed. And so I almost stopped breathing. Like I was hyperventilating and trying to breathe. And like I couldn't figure out what it was. It took a couple Benadryl. It got a little bit better. I went back to bed. And that kept up every single night. I couldn't breathe. And finally, I was like, it's got to be this plant. I, have, I had been allergy tested. I knew what I was allergic to. And I was assuming it was this pollen plant. And so I asked my RA because it was, I told, I, I told my RA, I was like, she's weird about this plant. You know how she is with her sister and, and her sister gave it to her. I don't really want to ask her to get rid of it, but can you help me out? Can you ask her to get rid of it? My RA said, yeah, of course. Sure. I'll ask her. I'll take care of it. So I assumed the plant would be gone. Later that day, it's still there. It's still there. And it's time for bed. And I like ran and found the RA and I was like, Hey, did you say anything to her? She's, I did tell her that this is the reason that, because I had gone to the hospital a couple times for this as well. Barge, their hospital on campus is called Barge. <laughs> they don't want you going to the local hospitals, mainly not to overwhelm them, but they also want to keep track of you. They want to know if you're skipping chapel because you say you have a headache. They want to know if you're skipping class because you have cramps, which isn't a thing according to the medical records that I obtained, my medical records from Bob Jones. Cramps and endometriosis wasn't a thing, according to that. 
But I had been hospitalized a few times because of this breathing issue and the reactions I was having. And so my RA said, yes, I did tell her that's why you've been in and out of barge and that you're having some health issues around her plant. And I was like, so why is it still in there? And she said, the dean of women told me to tell her and you that you need to address this in a Christ-like way and go and talk to her face-to-face because that's how God would want it. You need to talk to her directly. I can't be your go-between. So the dean of women was aware I was having these medical issues. My RA and my dorm supervisor were aware I was having these medical issues and my roommate. And they were all telling my roommate, don't do shit about it until she comes and talks to you in the way that we approve. Which, of course, you're not, a, you're not even allowed to talk as soon as the bell rings. So the bell rings as I'm talking to my RA and I'm like, what, I have to go talk to her now? I go in the room. Her lights are off. She's under her blanket and asleep. Like I, So it was another night that I went to the hospital. And so I called my parents either that night or the next morning. And my mom is a nurse. And so, of course, my parents were furious of this situation and like, you're putting our daughter's health at risk. And it was another situation that was real tense that was like my dad had just come down for the diary situation and that book. And now they're what the hell are you doing um, in this situation with our daughter? And I never felt like those situations are so crazy, right? It's like, how in the world do you think these things up? It almost feels like you're making up a story. You know what I mean? It's just like you can't make these things up if you tried. And earlier this year when my wife and I were going through IUI and trying to get pregnant with our daughter, I requested my medical records from Bob Jones because I I needed to know if, what vaccines I'd had at what time. And, yeah. and so I got these medical records and I'm telling you, I went through them for two hours just scratching my head like patient complains of period cramps not a thing or and I have diagnosed endometriosis it is a thing or patient complains she's allergic to roommate's plant patient again complaining she's allergic to roommate's plant it was always patient is complaining patient is patient is claiming and it was you the even the nurses and the doctors led with an assumption of disbelief nah like you must be clearly trying some you're manipulating the situation for some other reason why believe a woman? That would never work out for them. Like, why believe women? <laughs> and so it just it confirmed in my mind, even 13, 14 years later, that, wow, this was a real situation. I cannot even believe that this was a thing. And where were the people that were supposed to look out for me? Where were the people that were supposed to protect me? I was a minor. Like, where were the people that were supposed to be in charge? And it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> it's all crazy. Yeah, because when you, in the beginning, when you were telling your story of that, I'm like, why aren't y'all prioritizing her health? That should be the first priority above everything else. You are a martyr for those things. Literally, you give up your health, you give up your body, your soul, your mind, your power in the name of Jesus. And in the name of what they tell you, yeah. their interpretation of Jesus. Because I know a lot of people today that espouse to be Christians that are not acting like that at all. And my parents nowadays, they don't act like that either. My family doesn't act like that. And they're still Christian. So it's a, there's a big difference between 
putting these abuses of power in the name of Jesus one day, no matter what the venue, they're going to be held accountable, whether that's on this podcast, whether that's karma coming back around to bite them in the ass somehow. Those people will be held accountable and they'll get what's coming to them and they'll get their karma. I, that's one thing I believe in. If I believe in anything, I believe in karma getting you. My conscience is clear with all of that stuff, but people using Christianity as an excuse, that's not okay. But it, what it is, an abuse of power. It's a cult. It's a method of course of control, period. Michaela shares one last story of a time that she hid in the trunk of her car. I hid in the trunk of my car a lot. And it's so funny to me now, like, what a little sneak. On one occasion, it was someone following me around on campus, and I just wanted to get away from them. And so I ran to my car, and I climbed into the back seat, pulled the little thing down, climbed into the trunk, pulled the thing up, and I just sat there <laughs> and just waited. The biggest thing, and I've always had, like, dreams about telling this story, too, because I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to revoke my degree. Because... They have what's called Bible conference. I don't know if they still do. They still do Bible conference now. Oh, my God. Yes. Are you required to go? or? Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. They would always advertise it. Oh, have a break from classes and go <laughs> like to spring break. I know. Yeah, I hated that. So essentially it was spring break. We, we didn't have a spring break. We had Bible conference. And yes, they would tell you that it was a time to catch up on classes and refresh yourself. You had four damn sermons a day and they were all from the oldest people on the planet and they were a lot of times they were political figures too political figures in other countries and here and so they had this every spring and you didn't have assigned seats aha assigned seats were how they kept track of you every other time you would have a row monitor at the end of the row that would take attendance on a little card and then the little ushers would come and take the card and you would get the merits if you didn't show up not a Bible conference because so many people from the outside came as well. And so they wanted them to feel free, like they could sit like a church. You could sit wherever you want. They had people who would travel across the country for this kind of shit. And it was like, it was really a big fundraiser and sermon. Like they would have, we're going to redo the dining common. We're going to redo these two dorms carpet. Like our goal is to raise $250,000 and they would have giant offerings and it would be a huge production. Like it's, it, you, they made so much money during those weeks, so much money. But they were incredibly boring, incredibly boring. It's like going to, we called it mass. It's like going to Catholic mass four times a day, if not more. And it's required. Normally, if you skip a chapel, which they had every day, except for Fridays, that's when you went to your society or your sorority. Essentially, it's Bob Jones' version of sororities. It's called the society. So on Fridays, you would go to that. But Monday through Thursday, you go to chapel. Right. From 11 to 11.45. And they would have different people. If you missed that, I think you got 25 demerits, something like that. It's not bad. 150 to get kicked out. You can essentially miss six. Right. Bible conference. You miss one. One session, not one day, one session and you're caught skipping. It's 75 demerits, which is half your allowance. Right. If you already have 75, like a lot of people like myself, you're out. You get kicked out. You join the sorority society fly Delta home, right? You go home. <laughs> but I didn't Bible conference. I was willing to take the risk. And so when the bell rings, 10 minutes you have to get into the chapel, they kick everyone out of the dorms. They do a dress check to make sure you have your nylons on, to make sure your skirt doesn't 
isn't too short. You have to do the finger check to make sure your your shirt isn't too low for girls. Do you have more than one earring in each ear that, you know, is your hair appropriate? Did you, you know, like all that kind of stuff. They wouldn't put us in a filed line out the door. The way you got out of that is you left a little early. And so I would leave a little early and maybe go get some breakfast. And then I would go straight to my car while everyone else was doing breakfast and getting ready. So I would just make sure I left a little early and I would go to my car and I'd climb in the trunk and I'd bring my flashlight and I'd bring a book or I'd bring my laptop that had a pirated movie on it that I'd have to delete immediately. Whatever. We didn't have smartphones then either. So it's not like you could just go on Netflix or anything. That didn't exist back then. So we had to get around those kind of things if you want any kind of entertainment. But yeah, I would just wait until... I knew it was probably over and then I would eventually like peer out, make sure no one was around. And then I would probably just go off campus and get something to eat. Like I'd been just gotten to my car and I skipped so many Bible conferences that way. <laughs> I love it. But, desperate but honestly, times, like, desperate measures. But like goofy as hell, right? Like, but like it's, it is, but also it's so sad that you being a college student, had to go that far just to have a sense of freedom to have a any sense of privacy really yeah it wasn't freedom freedom isn't being locked in a hot uh, sure yeah it was hot i remember sweating my ass off being like i might suffocate but it's going to be worth it because at least i'll be alone for two minutes i you live with four or five people all the time people are always watching you there's never not eyes on you and so to have 30 minutes where there's nobody watching you and you literally feel like you can be alone I was just watching reruns of The Office in the trunk of my car, but to me, it felt like the most safe place, which is so goofy to think about now that, wow, I literally couldn't get away for a couple minutes. My wife and I hide from our kids all the time still, but it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is a thing in cults is that you don't have that privacy you're always do you're always doing something. You're always kept so busy, and you're always around people, and they don't want you to have that alone time. Well, yeah, own. you're a scheduled person. I was always I always told people, even after I got out of the cold, I was a scheduled kid. I was a scheduled teenager. You would constantly go because then there's no room for trouble. In the next segment of this episode, Erin Birchwell has some more stories she wanted to share. Mm, yes. And something I want to dig into is before the Grace Report, how were you treated as a Bob Jones University student and your specific experiences in that environment? It's really interesting. If you don't mind, I might just start at from when I was a kid and growing up. So I was at Bob Jones as a kid from 1979 until 2001. I'm old. But my parents were faculty and I was talking about hierarchies and classes of people. I've had this discussion a lot since leaving Bob Jones. Staff kids were treated differently than faculty kids were treated differently than administrative kids. And then, of course, like presidents, like the Jones kids, that was all that was very different. But they're just like a lot of subcultures. There were hierarchies within that. And I was unaware of those as a faculty kid. But I know friends that I have who were staff kids were very aware of it because they were at the bottom of the food chain there. But I'd like to say it was it, Bob Jones was all in the family because your entire family had to be 
all in at Bob Jones or or none of you were. So if the man of the household worked at Bob Jones, and that could be as a janitor or a PhD, which was also what Dr. Bob Sr. liked to say, one of his little sayings was that the janitor makes the same amount of money as the PhD because it's, we're all this ironically socialistic type working commune. So everyone in the family had to be there. If you taught there as a man, your wife had to work on campus. She couldn't be a homeschool mom. She couldn't be a stay-at-home wife. She had to work at the press or in the dining coming or teach or do something. And then the kids had to attend a nursery through college. And when I say have to attend, I had to always explain that to my students when I taught at the liberal Christian school that I love that I taught at. They were always like, Mrs. Birchwell, what do you mean had to? My parents would have lost their job if I had even just applied to a different college or just to look. That was not, you didn't do that. And when you grow up together and it's all, you just look at that end goal and say, I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to get a free degree. I'm going to graduate with everyone's job intact. I'll make the best out of it and then I'll get out. No, none of us could have gone elsewhere. It would have been meant disaster for our families and what just wasn't worth it. In fact, the head of security on campus, because, you know, it, like, again, they were their own little world. They had a police <laughs> unit, I'll say, in parentheses, because it was the Bojo 5 we call them. The, you know, anyway, they had their own little police force. When I was a child in the 80s, the head of security lived on campus with his family. A lot of families did live on campus. On back campus, there were houses and those people paid a small token payment to the university and could live on back campus. His teenage kids rented a movie that was rated either PG-13 or R. And I want to say it was something like along the lines of E.T., but maybe it was Dirty Dancing or it was something to most of the world would is completely innocuous, but you weren't allowed to do that. And so they had a little party on campus. Watch that. That weekend, they had to be off campus. The guy lost his job. The father lost his job. The mom lost her job. The kids lost their tuition and they were off campus. And I do think that in the 80s was a look at this, like the public hanging, see what happens. If your kids break the rules, everybody goes. There was immense pressure as a child growing up to not just not embarrass your family, but to not get your parents fired. Everybody had to go. You weren't allowed to homeschool. You had to go to nursery. So there was even on the third floor of Barge Hospital, there was a sick nursery because you weren't allowed to have sick days. So if your child was sick, you still had to teach or work or do whatever it was. You went to the sick nursery and it was a room full of kids that were just fevers, puking, strep. Everybody sick was in a sick nursery. So we were all of us faculty kids. We were raised like this little group of little, oh, what's the term? Like minions or something. We're all raised together with the same everything. So as part of this all-inclusive Christian utopia package where the whole family works, they were paid very low pay. And when low, I mean, my dad had two master's degrees and a doctorate from an actual school. And in the year 2001, he was making full-time less than $20,000 a year. So well below poverty level, they paid these people. And women were paid a lot less than men. And I know that from seeing my parents' pay stubs. But as part of the low pay, you were given all, free meals, free tuition, all these other perks. And you were given something called the promise, also known as the forsake me not fund. 
And that was the university promised to take care of you in retirement. Your housing, food, and medical would be covered. In return, you were also not allowed to work any side jobs because the low pay was offset by all these other perks. Fast forward several decades, this fund, which Bob, Dr. Bob III would go into church, many churches, hundreds of churches. There's even a YouTube video online still, and he would ask churches for money for this forsake me not when I am old fund to take care of the faculty, take care of the faculty. So people gave their hard-earned dollars to go, and that was supposed to go to retirement. In the early 2000s, with the rising cost of health care, with people living longer, the third floor of Barge Hospital was full of older people, and it was bursting at the seams. And so they had to look at what are we going to do with all these other people about to get old and they ran out of room and they looked at buying a retirement home, but it was just too expensive. And so eventually the fund dried up, according to Bob Jones. So they just took the promise away from all these faculty who worked for no other jobs and had no pay for all these years. Their retirement, like in my parents' case, their social security was based on this very low pay. My parents did not have enough to live on based on their social security based on Bob Jones. The biggest issue I have with Bob Jones, I have two big issues. The Grace Report obviously is one of them and the handling of that. But this promise fund really hangs me up still because it's not too late to do something like that. My parents are older. They're both in need of assistant living now, and they haven't done one thing to revive this promise fund. They've built multi-million dollar parking garages on campus. They've renovated their gymnasium. They've done all this stuff, and they won't even just ask churches for some money for this promise fund. It just, that is a huge hangup for me with the school. But so that's like a little bit of just growing up. Everything you did was on display. Three meals a day, you walked into the dining common. They had the line for the food in the middle. You'd walk through the middle of people. Everybody would sit and comment on people's appearances. There was so much pressure to look perfect, to be perfect, to represent your parents in a perfect way. There was so much pressure all growing up that a lot of us paid the price in our adult mental health from all the just the pressure of growing up on campus. Yeah, thank you so much for really digging into that. And wow, I really, I didn't know about that, the forsake me not thing and how, and I didn't know that they didn't keep that promise at all. And they focus on building their empire instead of taking care of their loyal followers. And I would like to also point out that in the recent debacles at Bob Jones, which I mostly am blissfully unaware of, but with Steve Pettit stepping down the second or third time I lost count, these positive grads of the university have raised all this money. And again, $50,000 as a like going away bonus to Pettit, who is already making, what, 200000 a year? All that stuff really still does bother me because they claim to not have money. They have all this very expensive religious art. They paid their faculty nothing. Their faculty in my parents' age bracket still have nothing, but yet here they are. Let's, yeah, you know, here's a little $50,000 thank you on your way out. Yeah. Yeah. So they really exploited people's lives and their labor of like their dedication. And this is something that really cults do is they do exploit labor and it's for the good of the group. It's for God. It's for the ministry. And we'll do all of these things for you. And it sounds like at first Bob Jones was going to do that. But again, when they ran dry, they chose to build their empire. Then doing the right thing 
and taking care of these people who had dedicated their entire lives to this and the next survivor i have on the show is lee foster who shares her experiences of bob jones influence over her family and i want to dig into like really Bob Jones' influence on your family and how that really influenced you also into going to the school. Yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about this because it's actually like crazy how far back it goes because it actually goes back before I was even born. So the first person in my like blood relatives to go to Bob Jones was my mom's brother. And she actually grew up in Manitoba, Canada. So it was crazy because my uncle ended up all the way from Manitoba down to Bob Jones. I am honestly not even sure like how he found out about Bob Jones. So that's something that like I'm not in contact with him, but that'd be really interesting to dig into because that's like crazy, right? Like Midwest Canada all the way down to East Coast, South Carolina. Yeah, he went there. He actually dated someone who's a current faculty member there, which is crazy. And then my, so his younger brother, my other uncle, ended up also going to Bob Jones for a little bit. And I believe he actually got kicked out, but I'm not 100% sure like the details of that. That would have been in probably the 80s, I think. So then all surrounding that, one of my uncles met someone from Maine and they ended up getting married, which is how my parents met. So my mom met my father at my uncle and aunt's wedding, which they met at Bob Jones. Which is one of the crazy things is that so many people come out of Bob Jones and get married to each other. <laughs> and yeah, so my father, come to find out, had actually gone to Bob Jones in the early 80s. They were in a church in the middle of nowhere in Maine where the pastor had gone to Bob Jones. And pretty much everybody from that particular church, it, when I say little, like I'm not even kidding, like 30 people in the middle of nowhere, Maine. Everyone there had pretty much sent their kids to Bob Jones. It was interesting because... The pastor at the time had actually decided that Bob Jones was too liberal, which is really interesting, and had gone down like the Hiles Anderson path, which for anyone who doesn't know about that, it's a very conservative school in Indiana. And there have been a lot of like scandals that have come out of there with the presidents and things like that. So that's just like a little side note. So my parents got married. I was born. I just remember from being a little kid, like we used Bob Jones curriculum. So I was actually homeschooled all 12 years of my schooling, elementary, well, literally like preschool through high school. I remember watching the videos, like there were some promo videos that Bob Jones had put out. So I, I like remember watching those when I was like, we didn't get a TV till I was like eight. So I remember that being like the first video I watched on the new TV was like the Bob Jones like promo video. And I always just, it was like, oh, this is where my dad went. This is really cool. I want to go there. And my parents didn't really talk a lot about college, which is something that all that comes up to you. Like I, from a young age, always knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. My parents weren't like necessarily like active promoters of going to college. My mom actually had a high school education that wasn't like something mutually important to her. But so as we... There were four of us in my, there are four of us in my family. I, it's me, then my sister, then my brother, then another sister. And as you can imagine, homeschooling four kids is a lot of work. 
And so we ended up using BJU Homestat from when I was in eighth grade until I graduated. So then I was constantly exposed to the ideas and the, the really because it was teachers from Bob Jones exposed to like their ideologies and their just, yeah, like everything from that time, like through high school. So when it came time to talk about college, I was getting a lot of college mail from all kinds of universities. And I was actually in a point in my life where I was like, yeah, I don't really want to go to Christian school. And my mom found out about that and basically said, if you don't go to a Christian school, we won't support you. At that point, it was like, Bob Jones is like what I know. And I know that like my parents will support me if I go there, like they'll be happy with me. And like, of course, as a kid, you're like, whatever your parents say is like very powerful. So yeah, I like ditched all of my thoughts about going to any other school and started pursuing going to Bob Jones. I had gone to visit a few times before. So that's also, I knew the campus. So that was part of it. And then back up a little bit. I know recently the documentary Shiny Happy People came out. And for anyone who watched that, it's based around the Duggars and Bill Gothard, but they brought in some other aspects into that. And so if you think about like mix, like focus on the family and Dr. Dobson with Bill Gothard, the Pearls and like the Duggars, like that's like how my upbringing was. So that was already like, pretty culty like I wasn't allowed to dance I wasn't like my parents never drank or like rarely let us be around anybody who drank wouldn't go to the movies the whole like purity culture and modesty like kind of stuff like skirts can't go above your knee so all of the pieces like all the pieces that kind of come together with that obviously like definitely like influence going to Bob Jones and how I viewed going there and all that kind of thing yeah, I pursued applying and getting into Bob Jones. And through that time, my mom would be like, we don't have to go to college. Like I said, like it wasn't ever pressure to go to college, but like I really wanted to. And it was clear that it had to be BJU or something equally conservative for me to be able to go to school. So that's, yeah, that's how I ended up at Bob Jones. I was really passionate about piano. I played, it's pretty much like what I spent my time doing all the time before college so that was naturally like what I started majoring in and yeah that's like the story of how I ended up there and I wanted to point out just I know the podcast is about how Black Jones has cult like factors like cultic culty factors and elements and I think just like looking back on the influence that it had on my family is like really important to that because I think that a lot of people can relate whether it's like you have to go to Bob Jones or you have to go to a, a conservative Christian school or that kind of thing, there's not choice there and there's not autonomy, which is a cult thing, like issues. Yeah, yes, most definitely. In the last segment of this episode, Nate Nacal shares some of his stories and experiences at Bob Jones University. Yeah, with. Going to that school, what were some really specific stories of key experiences there? I think it was my second or third year. I was leading music for my society and we had a society outing. I think it was a, a dating outing where we, for this one, it, 
I, like I look back and I'm like, this was a terrible idea. All of it was just stupid. But we <laughs> instead of a normal dating outing where we would have a fun activity or something, we decided to put on like a more of a worshipful singspiration type of outing with music and preaching and or Bible study or whatever. And so I, I was handling the music for that event. And I went through the proper channels and had my music, music choices checked and everyone was okay with it. I went along with leading the program and I knew that one of the songs I had chosen would likely have been flagged. And the song was actually Above All by Michael W. Smith. Like the theme of the night was love. And we did the song Above All. And enough people in the group knew the song and were singing along. And people seemed to enjoy the evening. And didn't give it a second thought again. Until a week later, I got called into the Dean of Men's office. And they started grilling me about this music choice. And so things like, did you know that and I knew the answers right you like the only thing that you can do in these instances is lie and or act very repentant and contrite honesty is never a good policy when it comes to meetings with with these people because you're only going to end up in a worse situation than you're starting off in so I I acted I didn't know who this artist was that like my, I said something like, I heard about it at my church back home, and I, one of my friends who I was in youth group with sent me the sheet music for it, and I really enjoyed the song. It was beautiful. So I, and I played it on my guitar in the most checkable way possible. I don't know if you guys still used the word checkable, but things that passed yeah. the rules. So I played, I, my strumming pattern was as much as possible, steering clear of emphasizing the second and fourth beat of the measure and all of that. I made sure when I, I didn't do any sort of vocal scooping in the song. So it made it sound a little bit cheesy because it's a Michael W. Smith song. You can't, it's like it doesn't work quite so uh -huh. well without yeah. those pop embellishments. But, but yeah, I acted like that's how I found out about the song and I didn't know any better. And then the, the dean of men who was John Dalton at the time, he then said, look at these lyrics here. The last line of the song says, you took the fall and thought of me above all. I'm singing to Jesus, of course. And he said that was almost blasphemous to think that Jesus would think of us above all. He was thinking of bringing glory to the Father. That's the thought he had above all, not us. This is selfish. This is egotistical. That like even if you didn't know this song and the artist beforehand, you should have read these words and known based on the words that this is this is borderline sinful. Thankfully, though, he was like, "You didn't, you didn't know," and because of your ignorance, and I apologize. And I was like, "I'm so sorry. I didn't think through that. I was very enamored with the message of God's love for us being poured out, and so on and so forth." And I'll do my best to be more diligent in the future. And so Dalton was like, okay, because you didn't know, if you had known, this would have carried with it a hundred demerit penalty. But because you didn't know, we're only going to give you 50 demerits or something like that. So yeah, that was... Wow, so kind of him. I know, so kind. Another another instance was, and this was my own naivety at at the school, was I one year I was assigned to live in Graves. And being a northerner, northerner, 
and being non-white. Wait, perspe- so the Graves dorm existed then? Yes, when I was there. Oh, I was heard there. that change because he was a white supremacist and part yes. of the KKK. He was like a, a supreme cyclops or grand cyclops or whatever of the KKK. So I found out about this and I'm like, well, we've got a dorm building named. And of course, as a northerner, we don't look too kindly on the KKK. I don't know what people in South Carolina, how the general feeling is about the KKK. But where I'm from, the Klan is not looked at too kindly. Also, I'm not a white person, so I don't feel so comfortable around any kind of Klan paraphernalia. So I requested to be moved to another building. This just shows my own naivety about this, but they didn't think that was a legitimate reason to request to be moved to a different dorm building so i was stuck living in graves for a year yeah me a non-white person living in a building named after a member of the kkk yeah and like i i'm not sure i know they have been like bob jones was one of the first institutions to change because there were other institutions i can't remember which ones that hadn't buildings or things named after graves and bob jones is one of the first mm. to change like once i'm not sure i guess someone had to make a fuss about it or make a big deal because they only changed things to protect yeah. their reputation exactly so it must have had to hurt the reputation in some way and then they had to change oh okay oh yeah that's what i'm thinking but i'm not sure what the incident but yeah, what were some other experiences for you at the school? Yeah, and so I remember shortly before I I started attending, the rule banning interracial dating had just been removed. From my experience, there was a lot of confusion about the rules enforcement or whether or not there would be vest. I think there were still some vestiges floating around. There were, there were like things about people having to get permission slips in order to date somebody who wasn't the same the same race as them and i ended up in a similar situation where and i don't know uh, like what the exact circumstances are i don't really remember it super clearly but i went to an artist series with this girl who said that she needed to get a permission slip signed by her parents in order to go to artist series with me and i found that weird looking back on it now obviously stamp that categorize that as blatantly racist behavior on the part of an institution oh, but yes. i i don't know that like i really understood what was behind all of that what the need for it was i just was like oh i'm grateful that i'm here at this time where those rules don't that rule doesn't exist anymore or the ban doesn't exist anymore so I don't know if the rule itself about permission slips was even a thing. I don't know if that was like something that maybe her parents cared about or she used as as some kind of excuse to maybe to try to keep me from pursuing this date, which I'm like, okay, whatever, go sign a permission slip. Like maybe she assumed that I would say, okay, screw it. I'm not going out with you. But it's not like anything was a follow up. It was an artist series date which is usually a one-time thing. At least for me, artist series dates were always a one-time thing. And then I would almost never really maintain contact with the girl that I went with after that, unless I had gone with one of my one of my good friends. But if I like sat next to a girl in class and was like, hey, do you want to go to artist series together? Odds are by next semester, I wasn't really talking to that person anymore. <laughs> the guest I have coming on the podcast today is Dr. Camille Lewis. She got her Bachelor's of Arts in English 
from 1986 to 1990 at Bob Jones. She then got her master's in public speaking from 1990 to 1992. And then she was on faculty at Bob Jones University from 1992 to 2007. And during a section of that time, she then got her PhD. And now she is here to talk about her experiences as faculty at BJU. Hello, everyone. I am so happy to have Camille Lewis on the show today. She is just a superhero with all the work that she's done. She's a scholar of fundamentalism, and she runs the Tumblr blog called What BJU, and she has worked just so hard at archiving all of BJU's past of things they do not want you to know about. She's the one to go to find the receipts and on her blogs. I'm so glad that she's done that because we need people like you, Camille, to do that, to hold these organizations accountable and to not let people forget what they have done and things that they still continue to do. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done. And like, you're considered a doctor though, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I have a PhD You're in rhetorical PhD. studies oh from my Indiana gosh. University. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, I got that job done. Ooh, way, way yes. back. <laughs> was there a degree in like fundamentalism or was it religion? It was a PhD in rhetorical studies with a minor in American studies. So all, and all the classes I took were in the religious studies department for my minor. So my dissertation was about how BJU talks its way into the public sphere because it says that it's separate. But we all know they're right in the middle of politics. So that's a weird thing for them to negotiate. So that's what I was trying to understand. I got you. And so I definitely, I want to dig into your experiences and then, of course, also your expertise in this area. And I know we have a lot to dig into with fundamentalism, with the politics and everything. But for people... It's just so insane to me because you were a student there and you were faculty, like you were in really deep. And then here you are exposing this place through your incredible blog that you put out. And so for people who don't know your background, could you talk a bit about an overview of like your experience as a student at Bob Jones and then your experience as faculty at the college? Okay, so I was a... Undergrad from 1986 to 1990, I earned a bachelor degree in Bachelor of Arts in English with a minor in public speaking. And then I got a master's degree finished in 92 in public speaking is what they call it. They call it rhetoric. They don't call it anything now, but they call it rhetoric and public address later. And then I taught there from full time, 92 to 2007. Four years in there, I was getting my PhD at Indiana. When I was a student, I was pretty boring. I didn't get a lot of attention for being naughty. I got 11 demerits every, all four years. I have a whole list of things, just little things that I thought were, as I look back, were strange. When I was a prayer captain, I remember my roommate needing to go talk to Jim Burke about the fact that her father had sexually assaulted her entire life. I told Grace about that. 
As a grad student, I remember Bennis Jones objecting to my project, which was about the Christian, or I should say the religious arguments by the feminists, but mostly Christian arguments. By the early feminists, she said that wasn't appropriate. Christians weren't supposed to pursue rights, she said. I remember as a graduate student in the dining common being told before I went out on ministry team that I needed to join Weight Watchers because I was gaining weight and that would be a bad testimony. I remember Bennis Jones instructing me to model the swimsuit. I was 23. I was supposed to take on ministry team. She wanted to see it before we left. I refused. I was like, good grief, lady. I am not doing this. I remember in 92 as a new faculty member hearing Bob Third rage about something in faculty meeting. And he gave so many details. It hit me in the middle of his rant. He's talking about me. And I had returned some fabric at a fabric store in Greenville that was defective. And the store was giving us a hard time. The credit card company ended up giving us a refund. So it was all, we all worked out. But while this was going on, someone saw us, reported us to Bob and said that we had said that if we were going to tell everybody at Bob Jones University not to shop there. And we did not say that at all. I have a letter I wrote to Dr. Bob that I never sent about all that. It was terrifying. That sweaty feeling that you get was awful. I got memos about what I was wearing exercising back campus. I got memos about wearing two short skirts. I was pregnant with our first child, and I was in a women's group, singing group for Bible conference. And they said she can't sing because she's pregnant. We don't allow that. And we were all like, what? When is that a rule? I didn't know that. That was so weird. I remember my salary and I have all my pay stubs at the end of the year pay stubs. In 2006, I was with a PhD. I earned less than 20K gross that year. The average salary in Greenville that year was 46K. So I was less than half. That's with a PhD. I remember a student of color who wanted to perform in the commencement contest and he wanted to do a Langston Hughes poem. But the white Southern lady in charge of the contest said that he couldn't do that. So she suggested he do a Robert, a poem about Robert E. Lee. That was nuts. I remember the provost, this is on faculty, trying to tell me or telling me, in no uncertain terms, to write multiple choice questions for Stephen Jones' PhD comprehensive exams, which is not how those things go. I didn't have a choice on that one. I have the questions. I told Sachs about that because that was just nuts. I remember being with my child. He was an infant. I was going to take him to the car because I had diapers there. This piano faculty member stopped me to say he had heard that I had an egalitarian marriage with my husband, and that is not biblical. And what am I going to do about that? What? How do I defend myself or something? And I just brushed it off because I was like, dude, it's none of your business. He ended up calling a meeting with my immediate supervisor, which was DeWitt Jones, and my husband and him. And he all we all sat and talked about how egalitarian marriages were, or he told us, about how egalitarian marriages were unbiblical. And Grant and I were like, this is none of your business. Just, just step off. It's nuts. I remember I was standing, and I just looked at the pictures of this recently for you all, under the covered sidewalks by the campus daycare. It was at the end of the sidewalk. I was standing right by all the weird tricycles they had there. They had these old tricycles and they, and weird little teeter-totters. And I was looking at the poise, and I hear this lady 
from my left coming, walking towards me. She was wearing those BJU shoes. You know what I'm talking about. They clip, clop, clip, clop, really loud. She was mad. And she had this little distracted boy, little boy, three or four. She was holding by the hand as she walked. And she just, her mouth was, she was mad. She walked past me. And I'm still there. I'm standing there waiting for my son. He's in story time or the cleanup time or something. Ten minutes later, she comes back. Same teacher. She'd walk in the other direction with the little boy. Now the little boy is sobbing. And so he had been spanked. She had taken him to Miss Pennington, maybe called her Miss P, to get paddled by a stranger. And then she was walking him back and she said, happy heart, Joshua, happy heart. So the little kid couldn't even cry after being hit. And that just, that, uh, that just infuriated me. That was not fair to that boy. It wasn't good teaching. It wasn't good care. It was cruel. It was cruel. And it made me, and I prayed right there, God, save my son from being with that teacher. Now, I honestly thought, I, this is naive, but I thought God would move her. That's not what happened. God moved us. So a few months, I don't know where that was in the timeline, but it was in August of 2006. I got a memo in my in-service packet. They would give us these packets with the calendar and the phone directory and coupons and all kinds of stuff. And in there was this memo from the campus daycare, which instructed me to sign it and return it. It said something like, because we want to raise children biblically, we use corporal punishment. So to get, have legal permission, please sign and return this so we can spank your son. He was two years and eight months at this point. I wasn't going to sign that. No way was I going to let the strange, scary lady that he didn't even know hit him. I wasn't hitting him. I've never hit him. He's 19 now. That hitting is not necessary. And so I got advice from a social worker friend and she said, don't you just not sign that. You need to write a letter that says the opposite. You need to write a letter that says you do not allow them to hit your child. And because you don't want any mistakes to happen. So I did that. And then I was marked. And I got called into the dean's office, my academic dean. He told me that I was just a young mom. I was 38 at this point. It was not young. That's not young. For, for, for a first time mom, that's not young. And he's only three years older than I am. So that seemed like, come on, dude, that doesn't make sense. And then, but then the whole meeting erupted. They started talking about my dissertation. So I had written my dissertation, which I told you about, and I was getting it published through Baylor University Press. Now, this is a huge deal. It's every PhD's goal to get their dissertation published with a university press. That is a big deal. And I was working on it. And so the dean said, I understand you're getting your dissertation published through Baylor University. And I said, yes, I am. I think he thought he tricked me into that. Like I'd hide it. I wasn't hiding it. Dude, this is a good deal. It's good for you too, BJU. And he said, he sat back like this. He said, the faculty handbook states, I said, oh yes, I looked that up actually. And the faculty handbook states that if you are publishing outside your area of expertise, we're supposed to go to the dean that oversees that area of expertise. Well, a dissertation, I told him, by its nature, is my area of expertise. You could see that he was turning his wheels a little bit. My division chairman was there too. They started talking about things. And at one point I finally said, look, I'm the only one in this room that's read this document. 
So this doesn't seem to be a very productive conversation. I need readers and I would love for you all to read it. And he went, like he was not, and this was his gesture. No, didn't want to read it. His statement was, I would caution you against that, against publishing. We really like you and Grant, and we wouldn't want you to do anything to jeopardize your time here. I was like, oh, my word, that's a threat. He's threatening me for publishing. That doesn't make any sense. That's weird. And that was in October of 2006, and the meetings just continued. And maybe this was your situation, too. When this happens, this is typical in authoritarian groups or cults. The meetings just snowball. All kinds of things for everything. I got called in about my church attendance. I got called in about something girls in the department were upset with me about. They were shunning me. The dean told them to shun me. He said, be careful about being perceived as being in a group with them, was his phrase. So they weren't, they weren't talking to me anymore. By the end of the school year, the president and the executive vice president over the academics asked me to write a document about my sin theology. That's a weird phrase. That doesn't make any sense because theology is the study of God. So sin doesn't fit in that. So that's dumb. I was like, you don't mean that. I'm thinking to myself. And my brother has a master's degree in theology from Bob Jones and a PhD in rhetoric. So he and I are cut from the same cloth in that way. So I was asking Steve, that's my brother. Steve, that's not what he means, right? He says, no, that's not right. That, that doesn't make any sense. And together, we've re realized they wanted to see my soteriology or my doctrine of salvation. So I wrote a document. I quoted good people, J.I. Packer, Louis Burkhoff, Augustine. I got some good people. And I wrote a document. My husband edited it. My brother and another uh, MDiv from Bob Jones read it. Uh, all of these people were like in on it. We turned it in, I think it was June of 2007. and the president and the EVP took my name off it, they said, and gave it to the dean of the seminary to read. And it passed muster. But then it, they called a meeting on Friday, the 13th of July in 2007 with the president and the EVP and my husband and, and me. They handed us a document and I have a little file for you with all these documents if you want them, because I'm a nerd. Oh, I want them. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> so they gave us a document, single space, several pages. They gave us one copy for the two of us. And they, my husband had it. And he was, he was awesome in this meeting. He was just, he was awesome and logical and articulate. And I asked Grant to hand me the document at one point. So I took it and I went, you know how this is. You, I went to the very back, the last paragraph. So I knew there would have to be a hit in there, a punch, a slap, a spanking in there somewhere. And at the very end, it said, if you cannot hold your position without openly promoting it in spoken or written communication to colleagues, students, or others at a distance from the university, we would have to come to a parting of ways. So I stopped the conversation between Grant and the two executives, and I said, okay, wait a minute, I have a question here. And I read the sentence. I said, what does this mean? openly promoting it. What does that mean? Because that's new. That's a new thing. To, that's a new statement. And the EVP actually went, he shrugged. He wouldn't tell me. And that's another thing cults do, is that they, want, they do not want to give you the satisfaction 
of clarity. Because if I had clear rules, then I know what to do. I know what to follow. You know, when you go to the dentist and they say, make sure you floss every day, that's a clear rule. Now I know what to do. I may not do it, but at least I know what to do. In this situation, I don't know, good luck. They're not going to tell you. So I said, no, wait a minute. I don't want to mess this up. What does this mean? And he shrugged again. And I just, I don't remember anything I said after that. I remember sinking, like, this isn't going to work. This is going to be bad. I was numb when we went home. I was numb. That was a Friday. Saturday, I was still numb. My husband said, he stuck his head out of the shower. He said, you know what? I saw a job posted at North Greenville for a tenor. So my husband's a musician. He's got a doctor of music and voice performance. He's a very fine tenor. And he said, I think I should apply. Would you pray about that? And I was like, yep, I'm on it. I love a task. So within 10 days, Grant had submitted an application, had an interview, had an audition and an offer. We sat in over here by us on Locust Hill is a Burger King and gas station. It sounds strange, but we sat in that Burger King because they had a play place. The kids could play and we could eat crappy food and talk about this. And we said, can we do this? Can we leave? What, what are our options? And we sat and it was Tuesday. I remember that. Yes, we decided, obviously, we can do this. And we resigned. We would resign on Thursday. I say it with that great pause because we really wanted to do the right thing. We really wanted to. And the right thing in Bob Jones land is to resign or to put in your resignation by February 1st. If you do it after that, you are blacklisted. You have ruined your reputation at Bob Jones because that's the rule. If you are, if you do not submit your resignation before February 1st, you are breaking the rules. You are not keeping your word. And we wanted to keep our word. But then it hit us while we were sitting there, that dumb Burger King, they make up all the rules. The rules are always in their favor. We will never be good enough. We will never meet what they want. They were going to always find a way to make us the enemy. So we talked, we slept on it Wednesday. My kids were little. They're both toddlers at this point. And Wednesday, Grant says, okay, let's do it. And I said, I'm going to go right now. It was like seven o'clock at night. I'm going to go right now and unload my office. He put the dolly, the hand cart in the car, gave me some boxes or like those plastic crates. He took care of the kids and I stayed up all night and unloaded my office in the middle of the night with nobody looking. So that when everybody arrived on Thursday morning, it was empty, which is so bizarre. But I felt like that was the only way I could do it safely without scrutiny. He went the next day with no problem. I remember driving home down Wade Hampton, stopping at McDonald's to get a hub. Egg McMuffin, it was sunrise. And then we passed out our, we emailed our students first saying what we were doing. Then we emailed our faculty colleagues. And then we emailed, we did all that on purpose. And then we emailed the administration with our resignations. So that was that. My church didn't like this. The people were going to Heritage Bible Church. And I think, I don't know this, but I have a strong suspicion that the pastor was told to get us back in line. That it's one thing if they leave, but they have to keep their mouths shut. And the pastor, is, and then the next November, we had some conversation by that time, but the next November, we sat in this Starbucks over here in Greer. We sat in that Starbucks and the pastor said to us, there is no example of what you're doing in scripture. What I was doing was telling the truth about my experience at Bob Jump. 
I said, you mean to tell me that I have this PhD and all this education and all this analysis for what it was like to be a separatist inside the community, but now that I'm outside, I can't talk about it anymore? He said, nope, no. There is no example of anybody doing this in scripture, which is completely bogus. They've got all the prophets. They've got Paul's doing it all the time. It's just, Jesus did it for pity's sake. So we had to leave that church and uh, because that wasn't going to work. And I realized as I was going that Bob Jones Sr.'s relationship with white supremacist groups was very cozy. I had heard a lady at the a National Review say something. This is so random, but this is what it was. In 2008, I can't remember her name. A lady in the National Review said, of course, Obama's a, ca- a communist. He's of mixed racial heritage. His parents are one, his dad's black, his mom's white. So, of course, he was raised by communists. That's what communists do is racial integration. They may intermarry. I'm just like, here's this lady from New York City who has nothing to do with Bob Jones University, why is she saying the exact same thing I heard in the pulpit all the time about interracial marriage? And that opened my eyes. I discovered that Bob Jones' separation with Billy Graham was over racial integration, not over anything else, anything orthodoxy. It wasn't over orthodoxy. It was over separating the races, not separating with unsaved people. The racial segregation phrase was coded as separation. And I kept going, and I found a lot. I'm working on a manuscript right now to document all that I've found with editors. So that's where I am right now. So that was my long diatribe. What do you need me to explain better? Just, I love everything that you've, you've brought me through so much of your experiences and a lot of the core things. So what is the connection with Bill Gothard and Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones University of what you've like researched and what you know? In 1980, when Gothard had his begin the beginning of his upset, if I remember, that's the term he used. He called in Bill Gothard, called in Bob Wood, the executive vice president of Bob Jones University, and Wayne Van Geldren, a big prominent BJU board member to help him negotiate with his employees. So he was calling on Bob Jones University for, for help, for, for support uh, in 1980. And Bob would basically told the employees to obey him. I mean, it was Kelsapriest. There was nothing new. Before that, in the 1970s, and I can get you this article, um, Bill Gothard wrote an article for Faith for the Family, the BJU magazine, in the 70s. In the 90s, it was before 1996, somewhere between 1992 and 1996, Bob Third told the faculty that they were negotiating with Bill Gothard so that BJU press homeschooling materials would be the only thing Gothard would recommend. And because of that and all the money, he was especially talking about the money, all the money that would be gained from Bill Gothard's recommendation would go to faculty raises. So that, I mean, we were, we really needed that raise. I mean, we were earning nothing. And so what do you do? I mean, you know, you, yeah, yeah, Bill Gothard. 
So those are the connections that I know personally. In 2012, the Duggars were visiting campus. You know, there's pictures of them in the FMA and stuff. So I have that documentation too, if that helps. Yes, it does. Thank okay. you. I'll film that too. Yeah, so that's, that's insane to me. So clearly that did not work out though. And why did that not? Right, that didn't know. work out. That did not. Clearly. See, and that's why, was Bob telling it to us prematurely or did something else fall through? Now, again, I my husband remembers it too. I asked him this week. And uh, and again, it had to be between 92 and 96, and that's all I can remember. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because um, it, it's been really um, eye-opening to see the connections with all these different leaders in this movement and you know like they say birds of a feather flock together that's all i'm going to say that's all i'm going to say there game recognizes game <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're all authoritarian leaders mm-hmm. yeah after i interviewed dr camille lewis a lot had changed with things at bob jones university I sent her an email asking her to give updates about what she thinks about the current state of Bob Jones and what the future looks like for them. And this is what she sent to me in a voice memo. There are several data points that indicate BJU cannot last much longer. First of all, enrollment is continuing downward. The BJU undergrad enrollment went down 10% in the 2023 school year. Additionally, according to BJU CFO, as of June 2023, the enrollment for next year is down across the entire campus. It's over a quarter of students in all years, first a sophomore, junior, and senior, and in all schools are not returning, and they can't operate with that kind of a decrease in revenue. Now, I am still waiting for BJU to publish the attendance for the 2023 summer orientation Usually, about 50% of the final number of first-time first-years attend the summer orientation. BGU usually publishes those numbers this week, and that will tell us a lot. Number two, scholarships are not bringing in the students. I covered this in 2018 and additionally this summer in 2023. BGU is so heavily discounting tuition that with every student that enrolls, they are losing money, upwards of $3,000. And those discounts aren't bringing in the students. The Washington Post documents that this is a sign of imminent closure for small colleges. Number three, BJU has $150 million worth of deferred maintenance. Two of the girls' dorms are so old that they need to be raised, but BJU doesn't have the funds to do it. Now, those are specific details But there's some other curious signs. It looks like the administration is uh, changing in such a way that they're just rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Alan Benson is a very polite man, uh, but he is even more vanilla than Pettit. And Pettit was about as exciting as mayonnaise. So BJU cannot recover its brand with this kind of a milquetoast leader. And just last week, This is so confusing, so I'm going to try to say it slowly. Just last week, BJU's CFO moved to be the CEO of the press. And he put his own brother-in-law as the CFO of both the press and the university. That's strange, and it's more than just nepotism going on here. 
there's something that they feel like they need for convenience or ease of switching funds back and forth. It's just a suspicious move. So these are the reasons that it seems to me BGU does not have long. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.